And welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The 20th century brought with it a madness for the modern. The late century was marked by a technological revolution, the likes of which the world has never seen before. And among many new inventions came various improvements that made existing technologies both more available and more affordable. Telephones, electric lights, gas ovens, and automobiles all became commonplace, not to mention wireless radio, talking pictures, airplanes, as well as tanks, machine guns, and all the appurtenances of modern warfare. Newness became synonymous with progress, and the words new and improved became the crack cocaine of modern advertising, and it hasn't stopped. Concurrently, the insatiable desire to realize a new world order kindled by the revolutions of the 18th century gave birth to new and improved totalitarian ideologies in the 20th. And all the while, like a rock standing firm amidst this stormy sea of change, the Catholic Church alone remained immune. From the very beginning, a long string of popes and saints said no to this mania for novelty, invading the sacred precincts of Catholic belief and practice. Early 20th century Pope Benedict XV quoted Pope St. Stephen I from the 3rd century, Nihil novi nisi quad traditum est. Let nothing new be introduced, but only that which has been handed down. The same was taught by Thomas Aquinas. Hold firmly that our faith is identical with that of the ancients. Deny this, and you dissolve the unity of the Church. This constant teaching echoes the words of the Holy Scriptures. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. New and improved is fine for laundry soap, but it's not applicable to the faith. The inspired, infallible, and immutable that is unchanging Catholic faith. And then came Vatican II, and an explosion of new terms and new definitions. Pope Paul VI actually said, the important words of the Council are newness and updating. The word newness has been given to us as an order, a program. In other words, newness for the sake of newness, change for change's sake. Now, the most common example must be the constant changing of terms, which can be essentially benign even if unnecessary and, and irritating. On the other hand, changing terms can be insidious. To take a, a secular example, I was in the car the other day listening to Dennis Prager, and he talked about uh, knowing a transsexual person many years ago who presented himself as a woman. That is, he spoke and dressed and, and lived 24-7 as if he were a woman. And Prager says that he addressed this person as she out of politeness and said that he would likely do the same today. But he does not extend this courtesy to, for example, the transgender swimmer Leah Thompson. According to Google, the celebrity was given the name William Thompson at birth, but changed to Leah Catherine after her gender transition. Or Thomas, William Thomas, not Thompson. But of what did this transition consist beside the name change? Why must we now re refer to, to Thomas as, as she and her? See, unlike Prager's example, uh, Thomas has done nothing to present himself as a woman along the lines of, of changing his appearance via surgery or taking female hormones, for example, perhaps because this, this would affect his performance as a swimmer. So a cynical person might conclude that his alleged transition is about nothing so much as winning swimming contests via the unfair advantage of being a man competing exclusively against female athletes. 
which Prager says makes him a bully and not a champion. And by demanding that he be referred to as she, Prager says, the transgender activists are insisting that we participate in a lie. Now, the important detail in the story is that the term transsexual fell out of favor precisely because everyone knows that you cannot change your sex. Cut off what you will, add what you will, take whatever pills you like. The fact of is that your sex is not determined by appearance or raw desire, but by an unchangeable combination of chromosomes. Sex is an objective scientific reality. You cannot be pro-transsexual and pretend to follow the science. So they changed the term from sex to gender. No, no, old boy, not transsexual, transgender. But it's still participation in a lie. Because to begin with, gender isn't a category that's applicable to human beings. Unlike words in Spanish, people have sex, not gender. That is, they are objectively male or female. To apply gender to a human being is entirely subjective. That's why a doctor who says, congratulations, it's a boy, runs the risk of being condemned for unjustly assigning gender. Because gender is entirely a matter of personal choice. But it's not assigning gender, it's recognizing a biological fact. And as Thomas Aquinas put it, against a fact, there is no argument. Which is why opposition to this transgender nonsense can't be logically or scientifically refuted, and, and they know it. And that is why all appeals to reason are simply dismissed by them as hate. Because truth sounds like hate to people that hate the truth. Now in the church, since the Second Vatican Council, there's also been an ongoing altering of terms and change of meanings. Uh, some very recent example uh, of terms, including changing the names of the various Vatican congregations to dicasteries. We'll talk more about that later. Last year, the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, was changed to the OCIA, the Order of Christian Initiation for Adults. Why? Well, they say it's to distinguish between the liturgical rites of initiation, uh, acceptance, election, the sacraments themselves, and the process or order of initiation. Uh, of course, the word rite is also used to generically to distinguish between the Roman rite and the Eastern rites, for example. The point is that these various meanings of the term rite were already understood and easily distinguished by the Catholic in the pew, meaning there was no confusion to clear up. So why do it? Now, of course, the change involves reprinting countless books and other materials, so somebody tends to make some money. But I suspect that such changes are often motivated by the common desire of all of these bureaucracies, committees, congregations, or what have you, to justify their existence. It's like the liturgists who constantly tinker with the celebration of the new mass. You know, it's after all, you don't need to keep having liturgy conferences and publishing missalettes unless their things are constantly changing. And speaking of, of, of relentless tinkering, name changes are one thing and translations are another. In 1970, many parts of the English edition of the New Mass were intentionally mistranslated. For example, in the consecration, the words of Jesus, provobi set promultis, for you and for many, were mistranslated as for you and for all. The words et et cum spiritu tuo, and with your spirit, were mistranslated as and also with you, just to name, you know, the two most obvious examples. Then in 2001, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued guidelines for a corrected translation, and the resulting new translation was implemented 10 years later in 2011. And these corrections were important, uh, A, because liturgy expresses doctrine, 
and B, because for an entire biblical generation, 41 years, English-speaking Catholics have been given a false impression regarding some crucial teachings of the Church. And that's why even John XXIII, who called the Second Vatican Council, also maintained that an unchanging faith requires an unchanging language. And that tells you something about people that want to change the language in regard to you know, what they might want to do with the faith. And then there's a third kind of change that doesn't involve new terms or new translations. Rather, uh, they simply change existing terminology. Or, ra or rather than change existing terminology, they simply redefine it. Hence, we are told that the upcoming Synod of Bishops on Synodality, which is the official title, Synod of Bishops on the Synodality, will for the first time vote, include voting members who are not bishops, and not even priests, uh, as you might have in a, a diocesan synod. Now, if that's so, then either A, it really isn't a synod of bishops at all, or B, the term synod of bishops no longer means what it used to mean. See, the fact is that words matter. Words can start wars or end them. Words can inspire love or hate. Words can bring us to laughter or reduce us to tears. Throughout history, words have inspired people to hazard their fortunes, jeopardize their honor, even risk their lives. Words matter because new doesn't necessarily mean improved, and change is not always progress. Words matter. The words you change, the words you retain, and perhaps especially the words you suppress. Consider this. After the final blessing at every traditional Latin Mass, the priest proclaims the last gospel, the first 14 verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Going down, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, and so on down to verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And at these words, the priest and the entire congregation genuflect in honor of the incarnation. And we saw his glory, the glory, as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in the new mass, the last gospel has been suppressed. And I'm not sure why. But I know that these words matter. And that's no nonsense. Okay, off to a flying start. We have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking in the very next uh, segment about the Incaridian of Indulgences and the changes that have taken place uh, since 1968. We're also going to be looking a little bit later at uh, various ways of assisting at the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, more uh, looks into the... Um, changes, post-Vatican II changes, quite a number of them that we're going to be uh, looking at today. Also, we're going to um, look at the, the change of uh, the Vatican congregations becoming dicasteries and whether that was merely cosmetic, you know, a distinction without a difference, or if it's something more substantial. That, the upcoming scripture readings for uh, the next Sunday in the Extraordinary Forum, lots more coming up on today's No Nonsense Catholic. Do stay with us. I am Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful. Glad to have you along, and we'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Yesterday, uh, I saw that a listener sent VMPR a digital copy of the 1968 edition of the Enchiridion of Indulgences. He wrote, I thank Jesus, Mary, and the saints for discovering this online. I have yet to hear any Novus Ordo priest teach or preach about the value of indulgences in any classroom or pulpit since I converted to Catholicism in the 1980s. Catholics and non-Catholics need to know about the definition and timeless value of indulgences, which are means towards sanctity. And he suggested that VMPR could dedicate many episodes to the forgotten value of indulgences, because the world needs to be reminded of them over and over again in this 21st century. And so, first off, thanks for listening. Uh, and do be assured that Terry and Jesse have spoken often about indulgences. Ditto Gary Machuda and yours truly as well. In fact, I dedicate an episode of No Nonsense to Indulgences every Lent. And Mary Barber, in her reply, notes that there are many Novus Ordo priests who do speak about indulgences and made some suggestions, mostly from the priests of religious orders, like Opus Angelorum, Canons Regular of the Holy Cross, and our own Norbertine Fathers here in Orange County, among others. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole process of, of granting and gaining indulgences. For more information, you can check out the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1471, or better yet, go to the Baltimore Catechism, number four, and look at questions 231 through 237. But as I suspect you already know, indulgences attached to certain prayers and devotions remove either all or part of the temporal punishment due for sins already forgiven in confession. An indulgence that removes all the temporal punishment due for sin is called a plenary indulgence. An indulgence that removes some of that punishment is called a partial indulgence. Now, before Vatican II, partial indulgences had a certain value attached. Uh, for example, an indulgence of 300 days, it might say. And some folks got the mistaken impression that this meant 300 days off uh, your purgatory time. <clears throat> but that's never been the case. An indulgence of 300 days meant that the indulgence had the same effect as doing 300 days of penance. Well, after Vatican II, Paul VI decided that partial indulgences should no longer have any such value attached, just some or all, partial or plenary. Now, all this said, I have no doubt, as our listener opined, that one could attend Novus Ordo Masses for 30 years and never hear a homily on indulgences, and how very different that is from the Church before Vatican II. I've got a wonderful prayer book from 1908 called My Prayer Book, Happiness and Goodness, Reflections, Councils, Prayers, and Devotions. It was compiled by Father uh, Francis Xavier Lassance, popular spiritual writer of the time. And it's both a prayer book and a collection of passages for spiritual reading, from Scripture, Imitation of Christ, the Saints, spiritual writers, and so on. And like most preconciliar prayer books, it contains the ordinary of the Mass in Latin and English, as well as various other methods for assisting at the traditional Latin Mass. For example, there's prayers at Holy Mass, the Eucharistic, pardon me, Eucharistic Rosary, which I've spoken of on this program, uh, Mass in honor of the Passion of Our Lord and the Sorrows of Our Lady, which is probably my favorite, and Mass for Communion Days. And remember, this was, you know, back in the time before most Catholics practiced frequent communion. Now, in his introduction, Father Lassance says, Our purpose in the arrangement of these Mass devotions was to lead pious souls to the use of meditation while assisting at the Holy Sacrifice. That is, to combine mental prayer with vocal prayer. 
Another object was to popularize the habit of making use of indulgence and joculations, especially for the benefit of the poor souls in purgatory. All the indulgenced prayers in this book are found in the Recolta, except those of recent date, which have not yet been incorporated in that work. So what is the Recolta? Well, it was a collection of all the prayers and devotions enriched with indulgences translated uh, into English from the official Latin text of the Enchiridion of Indulgences. I have a, I've got a copy here. Let me see. And um, this includes 781 prayers and devotions from the 1950 edition of the Enchiridion. Um, the most recent edition of the Enchiridion of Indulgences was published in 1968. And I have the English edition here. Now you can see it's quite a bit slimmer than the 1950 edition because all but 70 of the 781 indulgence prayers have been removed. But why? Why delete 90% of this magnificent treasury of prayers? Well, according to Pope Paul VI's 1967 Apostolic Constitution, Indulgentarium Doctrina, the Enchiridion Indulgentiarum is to be revised with a view to attaching indulgences only to the most important prayers of works of piety, charity, and penance. Now, like virtually all the post-Vatican II changes, this one begs the question, why is it necessary to whittle down the Enchiridion to only the most important prayers and devotions? Well, it wasn't really necessary. And that's not just my opinion. This is according to Paul VI. Holy Mother Church has deemed it fitting to introduce some innovations into its discipline of indulgences and has accordingly ordered the issuance of new norms. So it's not strictly necessary, but appropriate, I guess, because the fewer indulgences, the better. Uh, apparently so, I, because it goes on to say it has been considered fitting to reduce appropriately the number of plenary indulgences in order that the faithful may hold them in greater esteem. For indeed, the greater the proliferation of indulgences, the less is the attention given to them. What is offered in abundance is not greatly appreciated. So uh, apparently there were just too many means of sanctity available, and we didn't appreciate them, so we just get to keep the important ones. But once again, this begs the question, fitting or not, how on earth do you determine which of the prayers and devotions are the most important, and what is the appropriate number of prayers to consign to the Orwellian memory hole? And apparently 711 out of 781. But compare this to what was said about the new Mass, how we needed to expand the lectionary from a one-year cycle to three and, and downgrade the Roman canon to merely one Eucharistic prayer among many, not to mention all the multifarious options for everything from the penitential rite to the unprecedented uh, uh, Mysterium Fide and, and, and all of this to satisfy modern man's alleged, uh, allegedly insatiable need for variety and diversity. But with regards to indulgences, Paul VI reminds us that the treasury of the church includes the infinite and inexhaustible value that the expiation and the merits of Christ our Lord have before God, and also the truly immense, unfathomable, and ever-pristine value before God of the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints, who have sanctified their lives and fulfilled the mission entrusted to them by the Father. And yet it is apparently fitting 
that this truly immense and, in fact, infinite and inexhaustible spiritual treasury may only be approached via one-tenth of the prayers previously available to the faithful. Because, after all, when it comes to his private prayer, modern man cannot appreciate having too many choices. See, what an odd creature this modern man is. See, the difference, of course, between the many options available in the Mass and the limited number of indulgenced prayers is that the former is the purview of the priesthood and the latter in the hands of the faithful. See, apparently we can't be trusted with, with many options the way the priest can, which sounds surprisingly like clericalism to me. Consider paragraph 10, which says, It should not be forgotten that by acquiring indulgences, the faithful submit docilely to the legitimate pastors of the church and above all, to the successor of blessed Peter. So, I guess, in other words, just be happy you have any access to indulgences at all. Really, though, the, the teaching of the 1967 Constitution on the doctrine of indulgences is solid. And, I mean, coming as it does primarily from the tradition, that's what you would expect. But the document does make mention of some historical circumstances that might be relevant to the changes. Unfortunately, it says... The practice of indulgences has at times been improperly used, either through untimely and superfluous indulgences, by which the power of the keys was humiliated and penitential satisfaction weakened, or through the collection of illicit profits, by which indulgences were blasphemously defamed. Okay, but these references to superfluous indulgences and, and committing simony by selling them for profit are direct quotes from the decree on indulgences from the Council of Trent. That is, it's not a description of a 20th century problem, but one that was identified and corrected 400 years before Vatican II. Now, as the, the 1967 document acknowledges, the Church, in deploring and correcting these improper uses, teaches and establishes that the use of indulgences must be preserved, because it is supremely salutary for the Christian people and authoritatively approved by the sacred councils and it condemns with anathema those who maintain the uselessness of indulgences or deny the power of the Church to grant them, which is yet another quote from Trent, as the anathema, I suspect, makes clear. Nevertheless, on June the 15th, 1968, Pope Paul VI gave this order. Suppressed are all general grants of indulgences not incorporated in the new Enchiridion as well as legislation on indulgences from the Code of Canon Law, apostolic letters, even mode proprios and decrees of the Holy See, not included in the new Enchiridion. So, these prayers, the, these 70 prayers and acts, and no others, and no exceptions. Now, speaking for myself, the, the new Enchiridion seems like a good candidate for the worst of the post-conciliar Hashet Jobs Award. Because seriously, do you think that there are many more Catholics pursuing and gaining indulgences today than before Vatican II? I mean, to ask the question is to answer it. And I think you can trust me when I say that there is nothing superfluous or illicit or humiliating to the keys of Peter in the 1950 Recolta. And with or without the attached indulgences, it is a tragic impoverishment that so many millions of Catholics are, are essentially denied the traditional treasury of magnificent prayers and hymns and devotions, the more so 
because it seems so unnecessary. So what can we do about it? Well, by all means, fulfill the usual conditions and gain your plenary indulgence every day by saying your family rosary or by means of any uh, of the other indulgence prayers and devotions that were not canceled by Pope Paul VI. Because although you, they, they, they may have been rendered obscure, they are not forbidden. And the contents of the recolta cannot fail to enrich the spiritual life of any Catholic, even if those devotions no longer carry the traditional indulgences granted by popes and prelates of better times. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to be talking about um, why the Vatican congregations became dicasteries, and if that's uh, just something that's merely cosmetic, or if there's really something more substantial behind it. That and lots more when we return. Going to be looking later at the... Um, readings for the upcoming seventh Sunday of Pentecost, the Sunday in the Extraordinary Form Mass, and, and some other things as well. Also, maybe uh, take a little glance at what you can't do in reaction to these changes. Stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. I mentioned in the first segment about the Vatican congregations becoming dicasteries and asked if that was a distinction without a difference or if it were something more substantial. Well, I, I want to talk about one in particular, and that's the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, the congregation was founded in 1542 as the Holy Office and entrusted with matters pertaining to faith and morals. That would include heresy, canonical punishments, and, of course, the dreaded index of forbidden books. Right? That's the prohibiting Catholics to read books considering danger, considered dangerous to faith and morals. Well, the Holy Office was still in business at the opening of Vatican II when the position of prefect was held by Cardinal Ottaviani. And it was the Holy Office that was tasked by John XXIII with creating the outlines for the documents of Vatican II, although they were quickly abandoned, and that's another story for another time. But after the Council, the name of the Holy Office was changed to the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and its most illustrious prefect to date, Joseph Ratzinger, was appointed during the pontificate of John Paul II. Uh, and that's the thing, people, uh, when, when they want to make uh, the church seem forbidding or, or intimidating, they will refer to the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith as the Grand Inquisitor. <laughs> um, anyway, in March of last year, Pope Francis promulgated an apostolic constitution, Predicate Evangelium, which reforms the structure of the entire Roman Curia. Henceforth, all the Vatican's congregations and pontifical councils will now subsist in 16 dicasteries that are juridically all equal. And that's significant because it means that the Holy Office or Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the traditional instrument to ensure orthodoxy in the church regarding faith and morals, is now the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith and has no more authority than the dicastery for promoting integral human development. According to Catholic News Agency, quote, the Pope reorganized the internal structure of the Vatican's powerful doctrine office into, into two sections, a doctrinal section and a disciplinary section. 
setting out the doctrinal section's responsibilities, the new constitution says that it works in close contact with church leaders around the world in the exercise of their mission as authentic teachers and teachers of the faith, for which they are bound to safeguard and promote the integrity of that faith. Constitution also establishes the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors as part of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith. Right, So that one's just been absorbed. And that's a change that uh, Cardinal Sean O'Malley says is a significant move forward in fostering a stronger culture of safeguarding throughout the Curia and the entire church. Okay, sounds great. But since the Dicasteries are now all juridically equal, it's no longer the particularly powerful doctrine office, is it? Other significant changes are not so subtly intimated by Pope Francis. In a letter sent earlier this month to then-Archbishop, now-Cardinal, Victor Manuel Fernandez, who uh, Francis has named as the new prefect of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. <clears throat> Pardon me. Vatican News reports that the Pope's letter asks the new Cardinal to promote impetus for the transmission of the faith in the service of evangelization. Again, that sounds great. But then there's this. And remember, this is, this is a personal letter outlining the Pope's vision. Pope Francis writes, as the new prefect of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, I entrust to you a task that I consider very valuable. Its central purpose is to guard the teaching that flows from the faith in order to give reasons for our hope, but not as an enemy who critiques and condemns. Let's see. Uh, to give reasons for our hope, but not as an enemy who critiques and condemns. That's Pope Francis quoting himself. That's from his own exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, which in turn is an allusion to 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared and offer an explanation to anyone who asks you to justify the hope that is in you. However, do so with gentleness and respect. Now, this was the apostle's admonition to the rank-and-file Catholic, not to the man responsible for safeguarding orthodoxy in the church because that responsibility entails that heresy and other serious errors are critiqued and condemned, so that the true doctrine of the gospel not be obscured. According to the dogmatic constitution Dei Filius of Vatican I, assent to the preaching of the gospel is consenting to and believing in truth, which truth is necessary for salvation. Now further, Pope Francis defines the central purpose of the new dicastery as to guard the teaching that flows from the faith. Now, what could be wrong with that? Well, the teaching doesn't flow from the faith. The, the teaching is what we have faith in. In other words, the act of faith, the firm adherence to what God has revealed, necessarily comes after God's revelation. Now, it may be that Francis isn't talking about the act of faith at all, but about the deposit of faith. But, but that's an unnecessary distinction between church teaching and the content of the faith. Church teaching after the death of the last apostle doesn't add to the deposit of faith, but, but, but merely you know, uh, explains it, opens it up. So the possible meaning of this possible distinction remains ambiguous. He goes on to say, the dicastery over which you will preside in other times came to use immoral methods. Those were times when, rather than promoting theological knowledge, possible doctrinal errors were pursued. What I expect from you is certainly something very different. 
Okay, so what immoral methods is Francis talking about? Uh, it certainly invites plenty of speculation. I, I suppose many would uh, think of the Spanish Inquisition, but that was never a Vatican office. As for the Roman Inquisition, it was specifically suppressed in 1542 when it was replaced by the Holy Office, later the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Or is he talking about something else? Uh, he continues, those were times when rather than promoting theological knowledge, possible doctrinal errors were pursued. See, by my reading, that's a false dichotomy because it gives the impression that either theological knowledge is promoted or doctrinal errors are pursued. But those things are not opposed. They, they go hand in hand. Bishop Sheen said there can be no real love without real hatred. That is, there can be no love of truth where there's no hatred of error. There can be no love of God where there's no hatred of heresy. And that's no nonsense. And we're going to come back to this letter and the changes to the uh, CDF, or the, now the, the, the DDF, the doctrine, Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. We'll talk about that more next week, and perhaps a little bit about the new prefect, uh, Cardinal Fernandez. But in the meantime, I would be remiss if I let the show go by without talking about the readings for the upcoming Sunday Mass in the extraordinary form, which is the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, beginning with the epistle taken from Romans 6, verses 19 through 23. Brethren, I speak a human thing because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members to serve uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity, so now yield your members to serve justice unto sanctification. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free men to justice. What fruit, therefore, had you then in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of them is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto sanctification, and the end life everlasting. For the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God, life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, with these words, St. Paul admonished the Romans that from that point on, right, from the point of their conversion, they should devote themselves as zealously to the service of God as they had previously done to the cause of sin and wickedness. Because the service of sin is death, but the service of God is everlasting life. The words servant and to serve denote the full and unconditional subjection of the Christian soul to God, without walking any longer according to his own will, just as in regard to the state of sin, to serve indicates the dominion of the passions over the sinner. There is no requirement more reasonable than that a man should labor as much for God and his own salvation as he once labored for sin and hell. And that's why you should often think about the fact that the consequence of sin is eternal death. And when you're attempted, ask yourself, what will I gain by my lust, and my, my pride, my vengeance? Nothing but eternal death. Why should a child of God created to inherit eternal life make himself instead the heir of hell? And now I think we have time for the gospel for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. This is from Matthew 7, verses 15 through 21. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and shall be cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. As far as the words of the Holy Gospel. So Jesus identifies false prophets. So and they can be broken down. Number one is the world, which promises us honors and riches, but in the end rewards us with disgrace and scorn. Number two, the flesh which promises pleasures and joys, but at last leaves nothing but the bitter reproach of a guilty conscience. Number three, the devil, who promises us a long life and lots of time for repentance, uh, while the stubborn sinner is so often cut off in the midst of his sins. And then number four, all such evil-minded persons as would conceal their wicked purposes under the mask of virtue and honesty until they've entrapped unwary souls and drawn them into all kinds of shameful misdeeds. It is these false prophets of Satan, wolves of hell, in sheep's clothing, that cause the greatest havoc in the flock of Christ. Back after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. All right, to finish up our commentary on the gospel for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, Christ says, Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and cast into the fire. With these words, he's warning us in no uncertain terms that faith alone without good works, or in other words, the mere desire for heaven without the practice of virtue, will not save us. Our Lord says plainly, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father in heaven. And in another place he says, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Therefore, my friend, it is to your everlasting benefit to fulfill in all things the will of God and secure your salvation by the exercise of good works. And that's no nonsense. Okay, we've been talking today about some of the unprecedented changes in the Church since Vatican II, which apparently are ongoing. And, uh, and here's the thing. The kind of sweeping autocratic legislation that happened after Vatican II is really not in keeping with the historic exercise of papal authority. Paul VI's justification for changing the Holy Mass and imposing a new celebration on all of the sacraments, etc., was the supposed needs and desires of, quote-unquote, modern man. And for this reason, he overturned the practice of many centuries in the name of a program of newness. Now, that follows one of the two main theological currents of Vatican II, aggiornamento, or updating. Pope St. John Paul II maintained those changes, even made some more of his own, 
but his governance followed the more conservative theological current of ressourcement, or a return to the sources, and Benedict XVI likewise. But these two currents are like the two sides of a single coin. Our good Lord said in Matthew 13, 31 and 32, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of plants and becomes a tree large enough for the birds to come and make nests in its branches. And this is both a parable and a prophecy. When Jesus calls the mustard plant a tree and mentions its branches, he's not betraying an ignorance of botany. <laughs> Rather, he's alluding to the prophecy of Daniel 4.21, that the kingdom of heaven will spread worldwide and people from all nations will find refuge therein. Now, while the two popular theological currents of Vatican II can be understood in an orthodox manner, they can also represent the two most, or two of the most pernicious aspects of the synthesis of all heresies. To wit, a return to the sources can conceal the heresy of archaeologism or antiquarianism, a desire to return to the seed form of the early church as if the organic development of the succeeding centuries never happened. Or, or as if many of the historical, theological, and doctrinal controversies are still unresolved. And on the other hand, the, the updaters want to tear down the organic mustard tree altogether and replace it with an artificial one of their own making. But such approaches are forms of modernism, and both can be employed to undermine virtually any doctrine of the church. You know, with, with women's ordination and challenging the, the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments just being two of the most popular. And now along comes Pope Francis, very much of the updating school, who is willing to contradict not just the traditions of some remote past, but the living magisterium of his most recent predecessors. In fact, he's simply not governing like a monarchy whose goal is to preserve tradition and pass on a stable kingdom to the next generation, but rather like a modern political republic that changes direction with every new administration. You know, in the United States, we're used to contradictory policies being enacted every four to eight years, but that's not how the Catholic Church survived against the changing tide of history for two millennia. So what happened? Well, it was no less than Cardinal Ratzinger who offered an answer. In his book, Principles of Catholic Theology, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote this about the pastoral constitution of the Church, Gaudium et Spes. He said, and it's a Vatican II document, he says, if it is desirable to offer a diagnosis of the text as a whole, we might say that in conjunction with the texts on religious liberty and ecumenism, it is a revision of the syllabus of Pius IX, a kind of counter-syllabus. Now, he's referring to the great work uh, against modernism, the Syllabus of Errors, that was published by Pius IX in 1864. Ratzinger continues, let us be content to say here that the text serves as a countersyllabus and as such represents on the part of the church an attempt at an official reconciliation with the new era inaugurated in 1789. Okay, in typically cryptic Ratzingerian style, he's saying that those documents of Vatican II can be construed and have been by some to represent the Catholic Church's official accommodation to the New World Order, meaning essentially what the French Revolution was to France, the Second Vatican Council is to the Catholic Church. 
Now, now we've had some, you know, one relatively stable republic in America for the last 200 years, but the French have had five republics plus an empire, two monarchies, and the Vichy regime of World War II. So you can see how governing the church like a modern republic rather than uh, a stable monarchy can be a recipe for disaster for the church. And it's been going on ever since Vatican II, and especially under Paul VI and Pope Francis. And in both cases, uh, consequently, there have been those who have accused them of heresy. Now, just the other day, another canceled priest announced that, uh, in his opinion, Francis is no longer the pope. And I continue to get inquiries about sedificantism, this notion that some or all of the post-Vatican II popes have lost the papal office on account of heresy. Oh, Pope Francis said X, Y, or Z, and that's a heresy, and, and a heretic ceases to be Catholic, and therefore Francis cannot be pope. That's, that's the shorthand version. Well, here's why it's wrong. Stepping back. Objectively, there are things that even the Pope cannot change. When Benedict XVI took possession of the chair of Peter, he said the Pope must not proclaim his own ideas, but constantly bind himself and the Church to God's Word, obedience to God's Word, in the face of every attempt to adapt it or water it down. The Pope knows that in his important decisions, he is bound to the binding interpretations that have developed through the Church's pilgrimage. Again, that's Ratzinger speak for the Pope is bound to tradition. And that's in line with Vatican I that said infallibly, the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so they might by his revelation make known some new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles. We must follow the Pope in all things but sin in which case it is legitimate to resist him as St. Paul resisted St. Peter in the book of Acts. That's consistent with the teaching of the Summa, with the words of St. Robert Bellarmine, that it's licit to resist the pontiff who aggresses the soul, or above all, who attempts to destroy the church. I say it is licit to resist him by not doing what he orders and by preventing his will from being executed. However, listen now, it is not licit to judge, punish, or depose him since these are acts proper to a superior. You see, while Francis is certainly bound by the deposit of faith, as Pope, his relation to canon law is that of supreme legislator. In other words, he's not technically subject to canon law, which he can modify or even abolish at his good pleasure. He is the last court of appeal. Canon 333 says there is neither appeal nor recourse against a judgment or decree of the Roman pontiff. And Canon 1404 tells us the first C is judged by no one. No one on this earth has the authority to depose a living pope, heretic or not. So what do you do if you get a pope who governs like a Latin American dictator? You pray for him. You make sacrifices for him, and you give to his ordinances religious submission, unless it were a sin. But as for what happens after his pontificate, some, which will come to its inevitable end, history provides another possible answer. Back in the ninth century pontificate of Pope Formosus, it was, you know, he was involved with uh, political interventions and various temporal power struggles. Uh, so after his death, Formosus was succeeded by Boniface VI, who only reigned a few months, and then his successor, Pope Stephen VI, provided over what history calls the Cadaver Synod. 
We've been talking a lot about synodality lately. Here's, here's the early medieval version. Stephen called for Moses to answer certain charges. So his corpse was exhumed and brought to the papal court for judgment. Stephen accused Formosus of various ecclesial crimes, and at the end of the trial, he pronounced him guilty and declared his papacy and all his acts as pope to be null and void. And he could do that because he was the reigning pontiff. Now, naturally, this is an extreme case, and it happened in a very difficult period for the papacy and the church. From 1872 to 965, there were two dozen popes. And having a pope, you know, going one way, followed by a pope going the other way over and over again, it's terrible for the church. You know, um, there was a pope every year from 896 to 904. And these short papal reigns uh, were often the results of the machinations of local Roman political factions. Now, now that politicization of the papacy, not to mention the cadaver synod, that's not the kind of thing that anybody wants to see happen again. However, God allowed it to happen in the ninth and 10th centuries. And the 11th, 12th, and especially 13th centuries that followed saw the renaissance of letters in the West, the birth of Christendom, the rise of scholasticism, and are universally acknowledged as the centuries of the greatest genuine social progress in all of human history. It's an axiom of physics that what has happened can happen. So we can have faith that God will bring good out of the tribulation of our days, even if it involves some really extreme measures. And that's no nonsense. All right. Thank you so much for being with me this week. I appreciate it greatly coming to you here from the, uh, the Southern Command Center behind the Orange Curtain. Um, I wanted to mention that we have um, a new T-shirt available. If you go to vmpr.org, right, it should be right there on the homepage. There's a, a thing that says VMPR Shop, and you can click on that, and you see that we have a, a T-shirt that says, I stand with Strickland. And a lot of people have been uh, asking about it, so I thought I would tell you that it is, in fact, ready to go. Also, while you're there, you can check out all the stuff we're doing. All the different shows are there um, in um, – the show pages, every show is um, on Rumble. So for those of you that only listen with audio, you can go and see video as well. Although personally, I have a face for, for podcasts <laughs> or radio rather than video. But uh, uh, I do invite you to go and, and check it out. And if possible, hit that donate button. We appreciate your prayers so much, but we also need your financial support, especially during these tough summer months. So uh, until next time, I just want to say... Thank you so much for listening. I'm Matthew Warnell for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. May God richly bless you and your family.